listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 242. In this episode, we are speaking with the educators of the Twin Cities who are now on strike. But first to the news. The tech workers of the New York Times have finally won a hard-fought battle for a union. The new union is part of the News Guild of New York, joining the Times editorial employees who have been unionized for many decades. The 600-person collective bargaining unit includes workers across various tech operations of the Times, including designers, data analysts, digital engineers, and others who make the New York Times digital portion run. According to the News Guild, The Times Tech Guild is, quote, the largest union of tech workers with bargaining rights in the country, unquote, and it was a hard slog. Since the union went public with its campaign last April, the company has dragged its heels by first blocking the workers' request for voluntary recognition, and then by rejecting a proposal for an online election, which would have been easier and more accessible. Last August, the workers expressed their frustration by staging a half-day walkout. Workers have also complained of the Times subjecting workers to intimidation and anti-union propaganda. And in the lead-up to the vote, the New York Times tried to go to the National Labor Relations Board to petition for the proposed bargaining unit to be stripped of 100 workers and divided into smaller units. That failed. In the end, the vote, in which 85% of the bargaining unit participated, was overwhelmingly in favor of unionization, 404 to 88 The Times Tech Guild has broken new ground for organizing in the tech sector, but it's also part of a wave of media unionization over the past few years, led by the News Guild and the Writers Guild East. News Guild recently won recognition for employees at the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, and The Daily Beast, in addition to representing about 1,300 editorial and business employees at the Times. Although unionization rates remain fairly dismal across the private sector as a whole, this is one good news story for labor. I spoke with Benjamin Harnett, a digital engineer for NewYorkTimes.com, about what the organizing process was like and what he learned about himself and his coworkers. Just uh, start at the beginning. Tell us how you and your coworkers got interested in organizing. Yeah, we've been public since April of last year. That's when we went public and asked management to voluntarily recognize us. When we had a, a large majority of our coworkers had signed cards and were wanted to be part of the union, but the organizing effort really started before that. Um, I was trying to think back. I personally have been involved with it for roughly three years, but it started before that even, <laughs> maybe maybe six or 12 months before I got involved. Um, so this, is, this has been a long road, and uh, it's been really interesting just to, to see all the changes along the way and, and you know, how much it took to, to get here. So I got involved. One of my colleagues nervously asked me to coffee um, and said, like, hey, um, have you ever thought about a union? (laughs) And, um, you know, I was like, yeah, I I have. I mean, I've been at the Times uh, in in June. It will be my 10 year anniversary of joining the company. And I remember, you know, when I first joined, seeing all the guild stickers in the break rooms and wondering sort of why some employees were in the union um, and some weren't. And um, and I guess I never took it farther than that until uh, this colleague said, hey, you know, have you thought about it? And there's and then I joined a signal group and it turned out that some people had been discussing, um, you know, the idea of forming a union. And, and obviously, you know, there's definitely there's lots of reasons people have for joining. Uh, you know, I, you know, 
I had frustrations with, you know, the promotion process, with fairness and equity, with transparency, um, you know, with with not having a voice. But but overall, what we organized around with was really getting that democratic voice. And that was the thing that resonated with people. Um, you know, everyone had their individual issues. We had the big issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in pay fairness, in, um, you know, retention. But, but the big thing was just getting a voice. And so, um, you know, that's the message that we stuck with. And that's, we, we went through, I don't know, thousands and thousands of individual conversations. Um, you know, I've probably had hundreds or, or thousands of conversations myself with, with many of the coworkers, um, you know, and at various times, hundreds of people have been involved in directly in the organizing effort coming in and out of the organizing committee. I didn't know that it had been going on for uh, for that long. I, I guess uh, for for the uninitiated, can you uh, explain why? Um, you know that as I, I knew that the the Times reporters had uh, a union, um, so some people may be surprised to learn that um, you know for so long uh, this uh, segment of the Times workforce um, was union free. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean it it happened because. Because when uh, the Times, I mean, the Times has had a union, what, since the 40s with its editorial employees. And and that, even though they have, you know, a relatively good relationship and have been established for a long time, it was a difficult process in the 40s. There was a huge fight to get that union and make it happen. And and once they got that union, they got contract language. And the contract language and the unit definition specifies what kind of employees are in the union. And, you know, obviously in, in the that far ago, they, they didn't have this idea that there would be tech employees at a newspaper. And, and frankly, until, you know, in, I guess in the, they did have a mainframe in the 70s, and they had tech employees who sort of helped out, and some of them were in the union. And over time, the contract definition was such that, that new employees that were hired to do technical things weren't part of the union. We were excluded employees from the contract. And so, we could be treated, we could be hired at will, we, we didn't have any job protection, we didn't have a contract, but certainly in the, in the 2000s uh, and, and recently have felt like, you know, we don't need protection. We, you know, we could get a job anywhere, we could go here and there and, um, you know, get paid high and have people, you know, bargaining for our, our services. But that's not really the truth. The truth is that, you know, there are dangers to, you know, there's reorganizations that happen. There's, um, you know, people not being paid fairly. There's the chance that you can get let go without any notice. There's, um, you know, no job protection. And, and there's lots of people entering the job market all the time and they're driving wages down and, um, you know, not treating people fairly because they think they have a pool of people to, to hire in junior, uh, for junior staffers. And so ultimately, this idea that tech workers don't need protection, I think, is has a lot to do with a lot of tech workers being young and inexperienced and experiencing a good job market for a long time. And, and then, you know, you don't want to wait until things go bad to have these protections. And, and this is also a message that I think has resonated with people. Um, but, yeah, so we tech workers were originally excluded, were excluded employees and um and for a long time, people just didn't think we needed one. And so it took a long time for people's consciousness to change on that. You had to organize about 
600 people in this bargaining unit. Is that right? Yeah, roughly. I mean, the the thing, one of the things that we've been fighting is this this turnover. So even though there's 600, roughly 600 people in the unit, um, and there's there's probably a few more that we had wanted to include, but but the times fought pretty hard um, and forced us to really tighten our unit definition down to these 600. So originally we were looking at like seven or 750 people, but because of the turnover, we've probably organized even more than that because you know every year hundreds of people leave the company and hundreds of new employees come in in the tech uh, area. So so you know if you think we've been organizing for for this amount of time we've organized a lot of people and a lot of people probably left before they could see the fruits. Of- <laughs> this is true. You know, I mean, we've had some former organizers and people who, who have come back to congratulate us and they were sorry that they just couldn't, they couldn't stick it out. Yeah. Well, hopefully they're going on to unionize other, other works or places. That's my, my hope. I mean, you know, this, I, I know there's been there's been other tech unionizing efforts and other tech successes, but I really hope, you know, we've established a couple things, you know, first off, just the size of our unit and also the fact that we're including, you know, designers and um, project managers and product owners and, and all these categories in one uh, big tech unit. I think it's a really good, um, you know, I hope this encourages and, and promotes, you know, a stronger effort to unionize other tech companies out there um, and also all kinds of tech employees, not just the the software engineers. Yeah. I mean, I suppose when I saw um, the times uh, tech workers were unionizing, I, and uh, perhaps it's because of the union that you're organizing with, but I, I just thought of the uh, digital media outlet employees that have organized in recent years. And so I sort of, I guess my, my mind sort of went to um, organizing in, in the media sector um, as opposed to the tech sector. But I suppose um, your effort kind of straddles both of those realms in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the times also, you know, one of the things that we're, we're been experienced, we've been experiencing is, you know, when I started 10 years ago, we really compared ourselves in terms of tech to other media companies like Condé Nast. I mean, many of my coworkers and, uh, you know, bosses and people came from places like Condé Nast or the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, and and went to them. But in recent years, the the New York Times has really become a, a place for you know, tech work. And we've had people, you know, come and go from the big, you know, from Google and Facebook. And, uh, you know, from a technical perspective, we really are setting our sights on being that kind of, of tech work. And, and, you know, I think from a technical perspective, that's really good. But from a sort of, you know, work-life balance and, and management perspective, they, they do tend to come with some of those uh, <laughs> negative, you know, uh, ways of treating, you know, they're looking to eliminate what they consider low performers. They want this high turnover so that, you know, we can get the best of the best and get rid of the rest. And, and you know, I don't think that's a way to have a sustainable workplace. And, you know, I think it's crazy to organize your your work life that way. And this is another thing that I, we're hoping to fight with the union yeah. is that kind of um, treatment. If you think back to when you were 
organizing, what were some of the uh, challenges that you faced or did, you know, when you encountered skepticism, like what were some of the concerns that people expressed or, um, or, you know, what are, what, what were some of the um, uh, kinds of interference that you experienced from the management? So just talking one-on-one with people, the, the, the skepticism was really around, um, I think it had two, two parts. Like one, you know, there's the skepticism of, um, I don't think we can do this or how, how, how are we going to win? How are we going to achieve this? Lots of people who I talked to were involved in efforts to like improve things at the workplace that were, you know, through, you know, these groups that management set up. And the feeling was that they're just, you could do all this work and it would just be ignored or turned around. And so what, what I had to argue with people is no, having the union, will give us the power to achieve these things in a way that we couldn't before. And so you had to really bring people along. And then you had to say, like, I know it seems as one person out of 600 or one person out of 700, like, what can I do? But that's why we're, we're building this com- communal power. That's why we're, we're working with each other. You know, we would set these small, reasonable goals, and, the, and those goals we would just increase and increase until you, you know, at the end, when we got, you know, 404 people, to, to, to vote yes. The other skepticism was from, from, you know, I think younger, not as politically involved, um, you know, people who are, who are used to tech had this feeling of like, I don't need this. Why do I need this? Um, you know, and that you really had to, to talk through. And so, you know, you talk to somebody and say, you really like your job, you feel like everything is under control and, you know, you love your manager, but, but have you considered what would happen if your manager left the company? And people would say, oh my God, no, if, if my manager left and then some, you know, this other person came in, my life would be miserable. You know, that's for the people who were really satisfied and just didn't see what a union could do for them. You show them that like a union can protect the good things that you have, not just, you know, strive for other things. You protect the things you love about your job. And, you know, another tactic that worked for some people was like, help your manager. Like, like the managers at the very, you know, who are, who are at the very end of the chain, they don't have a lot of power, you know, and so they want to help their employees and they want to do the right thing, but they don't really have the, the resources to do it. And a lot of times they're, they're stuck sort of implementing whatever is handed down to them. And so the, another message is like, you know, we can use this to, to help your manager get good things for everybody and make sure that your work-life balance is appropriate and on-call rotations are, are you know, reasonable and, you know, the demands that the company puts on you are sensible. Um, and then you mentioned the other thing, which is once we went public, there was the, the, the anti-union campaign, which, which we prepared for and really talked through and thought about. But you can prepare as much as you want, but to have this barrage of um, sort of anti-union propaganda that's also like sort of demeaning and um, condescending. And uh, that's really tough to be at the receiving end of, you know, and then to have, you gra- we gradually found out that people's managers were sort of pressing them about the union and, and asking them sort of leading questions and, and making people nervous about their union support. We, you know, they, they tried to say that people who, you know, temporarily managed interns weren't eligible and couldn't show support. And 
But, you know, they did some things that were absolutely violations of labor law and, and illegal, but because the penalties are so small and so far in the future, it doesn't really matter. And then they'd go through this period of like doing nothing for a long time. And then they'd, you know, then it would be a full court barrage and then a nothing. And then, you know, obviously in that period up to the vote, they really turned it up to 11 and we were getting constant one way Slack messages and company wide emails from all of leadership with these exhortations and people were emotional. They were like, you know, I've seen what my teams can do without a union and I just can't, and you know, a tear, I can't believe what, <laughs> what it's going to be like with, with, you know, when we have the union and they kept, you know, they kept talking about, uh, you know, us, the union members as this, you know, third party. I mean, it's, the thing is, it's all this standard anti-union playbook, whether it's run by the New York Times, whether it's Amazon doing it, it, it might as well have been, you know, the the union, bo- the anti-union bosses from the mines or something. It was so, you know, just by the book, you know, third partying the union, um, fear, uncertainty and doubt about what's going to happen. And can you really trust, you know, people who don't know anything about tech? I mean, the. The truth is we're, we're the union. We're the ones who are making the decisions. That's the whole point about having a group of people coming together with a democratic voice and to have them say this kind of stuff. It was insane. Ultimately, even though during the whole process, it was really nerve wracking and uncomfortable. And ultimately, I think it pushed more people to our side to, to support the union, to have this stuff, because it was so ham fisted and heavy handed and sort of inauthentic i don't know but at the same time it definitely the the anti-union campaign it did it made the work of 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 getting this much harder like because it did it made people second guess it made people waver it took advantage of the fact that you know you and your your boss have this relationship you know when your boss earnestly says something to you or your boss's boss no matter what your your feelings are, you you are in such a relationship with them that you do feel this pressure. I mean, even if they're like, oh, no pressure, this is just my two cents. It's like, yeah, but you have the hiring and firing power. You decide on my promotion. It does make a difference. What advice would you have to maybe folks in other tech firms or in Silicon Valley who are uh, trying to encourage their coworkers to think about organizing? I mean, I get, yeah, you, the advice is to, to really talk to people and that it's going to take, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> and so, this, I mean, this is one of the other problems in tech is that the tech is set up in such a way that they really do churn through people and turn people over. And you're only in a lot of, for a long time, the way to get promoted and to get more money was to leave the company you're at and go to a new startup or a different company and work there two years and then go to another place. And so you know, if you want to stick around in one place and make it a really good place to work, you know, and and get a union, you're going to have to deal with this turnover and get, you know, you'll be back to square one with people as they, as new people come in. And that's, that's managed, you know, this is something that I think tech people don't realize is that that's on purpose. Management does that so that, you know, people don't get power at their workplace and so that they can churn through people and, and take advantage of them. So, I guess what I'm saying is like you have to be really committed to this and you have to to 
talk people through it and just talk to to everybody, but keep it quiet. <laughs> don't, you know, don't don't let management find out because they will do whatever they can to to forestall the process. I guess the whole atmosphere of Silicon Valley in general is, is sort of about you know, always looking to the next thing or like always, you know, starting up the next thing. And then it kind of discourages people from actually having allegiance towards their coworkers or investing in a workplace and trying to improve it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I I will say that one thing that you will find in this process of talking to people, you know, especially people outside of your immediate group, you know, when you, when you talk to people, you learn so much more about people that you both people that maybe you don't work with every day, you, you learn about the the company, how the company is set up, how what other jobs there are, what other things people are doing tech wise, and you know, at a company of five or six hundred people, it's amazing the diversity that's out there and the kind of interesting things you can find. But you do feel closer to people, and by you, you do get this sense of you know, I I would like to stay here for a longer period of time. I mean, it, I also think that that you know as you continue in your career, you do see the value of, of sticking around and building something lasting at a place. And, and having a union is a great way to help do that. That was Benjamin Harnett, digital engineer for NewYorkTimes.com and proud member of the Times Tech Guild. The world is full of awful news right now, so a rare bright spot, particularly out of the utterly non-functional U.S. Senate, is the bipartisan passage of the Postal Services Reform Act, which includes demands that have long been made by the American Postal Workers Union. APWU's newsletter on the subject called it, quote, the greatest legislative victory for supporters of the public postal service in a generation, and continued, Quote, together, over the last three weeks, APWU members and supporters of a strong public postal service made more than 12,000 calls into the U.S. Senate, bringing the full weight of our coalition to bear on this historic effort. While private carriers spent months pressuring key senators to vote against the bill, their lobbyists' money was no match for the power of 200,000 postal workers and a united public standing together in solidarity. End quote. One of the key provisions of the bill is an end to the requirement that the Postal Service finance workers' health care benefits ahead of time for the next 75 years, a rather bonkers obligation that private companies and other federal agencies do not face. It also, importantly, does not introduce the privatization that so many have been salivating for for so long, as the union noted. It sets into law the condition that the mail will be delivered six days a week rather than cutting back services as Trump's postmaster general had planned, and it will hopefully end the ongoing sabotage of the mail that we spoke about back in episode 204 with postal workers from around the country. But the bill doesn't solve every issue facing the Postal Service. Postal banking, which we've also discussed on the show way back in 2014 with David Dayen, is not included, nor is the issue of electric vehicles for mail delivery, which sets up another showdown, in part over union labor. Dayen himself has a piece on this subject at the American Prospect, which we will link to in the show notes, and he writes, quote, a separate fight over a contract for the Postal Service's next generation delivery vehicles and where they will be built could affect this legislation, as well as economic development in the Midwest, the Biden administration's climate goals, and a high-profile Senate race in Wisconsin, end quote. USPS awarded a 10-year contract to build postal trucks to Oshkosh Defense in Wisconsin. They were supposed to be zero-emissions electric vehicles, but the Postal Service, under DeJoy, decided they would be majority gas-powered trucks. 
So Joy said it was a financial decision, but of course, gas-powered vehicles will cost more, particularly with spiking gas prices in the long term. Beyond that, Dave writes, quote, Oshkosh Defense plans to move the facility producing the vehicles to the anti-union state of South Carolina, away from the United Auto Workers Organized Employees of Oshkosh in northeastern Wisconsin. Oshkosh told UAW workers for years that the USPS contract would not be through Oshkosh Defense, whose facilities are based in Wisconsin. When it was awarded to the defense unit, though, they assumed it would be located in their community. When this first came out, the feedback from our members was, hey, 10-year contract, this will get me to retirement, said Tim Jacobson, a painter and chief steward of UAW Local 578. Ultimately, that plan changed. Members had to find out through the media that Oshkosh was outsourcing the work to South Carolina. Once it got awarded to Oshkosh Defense, we weren't told the complete facts, said Bob Link, president of Local 578, end quote. He continues, quote, Oshkosh, which didn't respond to a request for comment for this story, has said that it could build the vehicles all electric if asked. Its contention appears to be more with the cost of union labor. Nelson argued that this is an effort to split the blue-green coalition that has been at the heart of efforts to ensure the energy transition brings with it good-paying jobs. They're trying to take the environmental issue and drive a stake through the labor movement, Nelson said. They're using this to divide Democrats from labor, end quote. So all good news comes with some bad news, it seems. We will, of course, keep up with all of this. This week saw the beginning of the first big teacher strike of the COVID era in Minneapolis where teachers are on the picket lines for the first time in 50 years. Notably, this majority women workforce began its strike on March 8th, International Working Women's Day. Also notably, the strike includes teachers and educational support professionals. You heard last episode from Mariah Robertson Moody, one of those support workers. And we nearly saw a double strike as teachers in St. Paul, Minnesota, the other half of the Twin Cities, went down to the wire before winning a tentative agreement and calling off their strike. And there could still be another strike in the Minneapolis schools, as food service workers with SEIU Local 284 have authorized a strike, though they remain currently in mediation. So this week, we talked to Minneapolis and St. Paul educators about the schools, the strike or almost strike, and what all of this means in a moment when we've heard over and over that parents are angry at teachers over school closures, mask mandates, and various other pandemic issues that are not, in fact, teachers' fault. We begin with Maria White, a teacher and member of Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and Educational Support Professionals. So Maria, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, for sure. My name is Maria White. I'm a first grade teacher in Minneapolis Public Schools in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Excellent. And so we are talking on Thursday morning. It is day three of the first strike in Minneapolis Public Schools in quite a while, right? Yes, the last strike was 1970, so 50 years ago. Wow. All right. So 50 years on, um, and our listeners who were tuned into the last episode heard a little bit from one of the education support professionals. But tell us what was going on in your school and with your experience of the last few years that led you to to strike. Yeah, you know, it's felt kind of for a couple of years that things have just escalated as budgets have gone down, staffing has been cut. The stress, the workload, the mental health of students has just been kind of escalating. Um, And you add in a global pandemic for multiple years. You add in constant disruptions to school from that. Our district did a 
redesign called the CDD, the Comprehensive District Design, to restructure. And the theory was to provide more equitable outcomes, but it meant that 60% of students were moved to different schools this year as we return to buildings collectively out of from this pandemic. 60% of students were also starting at a new school as well as staff. So that's a lot of upheaval and turmoil. And then, you know, Minneapolis is where George Floyd was murdered. And so we've gone through uprisings. We've gone through multiple um, murders of Black boys and Black men by police. And so there's been a lot of trauma that students and staff have gone through. And so over the years, it's just been escalating. And this is kind of the point where everyone is ready to say enough is enough. We are at the table we want to be listened to. And this is what we need to go forward. Yeah. And how has that shown up in your first grade classroom? Because I mean, with older students, you maybe have an easier time talking about some of what's happened. But with younger kids, I imagine it's really tough to try to process things. Yeah. And um, younger kids can process kind of different than older kids. Yeah. And it, it doesn't always come out with words. And so the beginning of the year with all the changes, all the stress, all the new situations that young kids have been in, it, it came out in tears, anger, like physical aggression, just big feelings that small bodies don't know how to process yet and need professional support to be able to. And I'm, I'm licensed in elementary education. I'm not trained. I'm not licensed in providing mental health supports effectively. And we do the best we can, but we need more and students need more. And, you know, kids have a strong sense of what's fair. And so they want to do what's best for their classmates and their friends, but we just need more resources as a school community. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what some of the the demands are and some of the sticking points that um, are still sort of being struggled over? Yeah. So I can just speak from the, from the union side. I don't know. I mean, you know, we're not privy to mediation, so I don't know. I can't articulate exactly what some of the sticking points are from the district side. Um, but we have a, several proposals on the table. Um, one of them is um, class size cap, and we want it written in our contract so that it's enforceable. I started the school year with 31 first grade students, and that is too many bodies in one classroom, just like physical constraints, but then also you know, we want to provide a high quality education to every child and being responsible for 31 children at that point where they become readers and they become students is kids just aren't getting the attention that they deserve. So that's a really important proposal we have. Also mental health support, such as a counselor and a social worker in every school. And, you know, we door knocked the other weekend in the neighborhood and talked to a community member with a child in Minneapolis public schools and said she really desperately wanted therapy for her student, for her child, and was told the wait list was six months. Wow. And kids don't have six months. When kids are struggling and they don't want to be here anymore, they don't have six months to wait. Right. And getting that written into our contract would be would make a real difference in kids' lives. 
Yeah, you sort of um, anticipated my next question, too, because I was going to ask about the conversations that you've been having with parents and family members in the district. Yeah, and I think a, a point that's often missing in like mainstream coverage is that many union members are also parents in the district. Yep. And so we, you know, the MIT living wage calculator says a living wage in the metro area, if you have one child, is $30 an hour, 30 something. Yeah. And we are paying our support staff $19 an hour, capping out at 24 or 25. So we are actively paying staff members in our schools who are also parents of children in our schools, we are paying them poverty wages. And so I just, I think sometimes mainstream media might be dismissive of like teachers' concerns, but teachers and support staff are parents too. So they're standing up, they're sacrificing their money, their time, their earnings to say, this is too much. We need for myself, for my kids, for my school, we need this. And that's the same things we've heard in our community. Like we door knocked and everyone that I talked to that participated said the support was overwhelming. People said your demands, your proposals are absolutely reasonable, absolutely needed. Even the wage increases, that's the cost of operating. That's what we need to be paying people for the jobs that they're doing. And the support um, has just poured out. And like at our picket lines, we the outpouring of support has just been so strong that we have to turn people away. <laughs> we just have so much support and so much love pouring out that people just want to help in any way that they can. And it's been really inspiring to see. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about this because there's been this sort of media narrative um, that has been really frustrating to me as a member of the media who's trying to do reporting, um, that all the parents are angry at teachers because of you know school closures and the lack of in-person education during the pandemic. And so to hear that when you actually talk to parents, that's not the story you're getting at all, I think it's really necessary. And I think other teachers need to hear that right now too, that you guys are getting support. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes the narrative likes to focus on just a few voices. And I think attention is being given to voices that are saying that as if it's equal number of voices as people in support. And it's just, it's not from what we found. Like when we had our art build and picket sign assembly, we had 500 people turn out, which was way more than expected. We thought it would take six hours to make our 4,000 signs and we did it in two. And it was so much of community just coming out to say, we're here to help you. We're going to make this happen people bringing their kids. So community members who aren't staff bringing their kids, their students to come help. And we've had families on the picket line with us. And it's just, it's not being given the attention that shows it accurately, I think. Yeah, I think um, it's been frustrating, particularly because um, the people who get to write columns in the New York Times are not parents of color in Minneapolis. They are mostly well-off parents in the suburbs of D.C. and New York. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I want to know sort of what the impact of the George Floyd uprisings and 
just years. I mean, Philando Castile was an, a, an employee of St. Paul schools, right? We're, we're talking about literally, you know, people in your community, in some cases, people in the immediate school community being killed. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you're, you're like most urban public schools and overwhelmingly students of color district. Um, so yeah, what's that been like in the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's intense. And even if, even people who have graduated, their siblings are still here. Like Dante Wright's siblings attend Minneapolis public schools. And remind our listeners who Dante Wright was. Dante Wright was murdered by Brooklyn Center Police last spring. So not in Minneapolis, but the, the first ring suburb right outside of Minneapolis. Right. So educators are like, we care about our communities. We are parts of our communities and it hits us hard. It hits students hard. And the district response is somewhat dehumanizing. Like, they they try to send support. They send out extra, you know, therapists, people to talk to. But if you're struggling, if your community's hurting, it's not a stranger sometimes that you want to talk to. You want to have those supports already in your schools to be able to sit together and process and spend that time together and grieve. And just sending out centralized people to go process one school at a time is is not I don't think how you get through that. And it's hard to have strangers come in that you don't have relationships with that are going to say, now tell me how you feel. Yeah. So I think our demand or our ask around increased mental health supports will also help us, you know, there's going to be future traumas and having these systems set up and these supports set up will help us get through them together and navigate that. Any last thing that you want to share before you have to run? Yeah. I mean, What's really stood out to me is that um, there's the narrative that people are getting is maybe not always accurate of what is going on. Like we had, we've had several people at our pickets that have heard our colleagues speak and afterwards just said, this is humbling. This is, this is so needed. The more I hear from educators, the more strongly I see how badly these demands are needed and not as like compromise, like this what your union is asking for is what you need. And I think that's just, I, I hope that gets out there of like, we, you know, the district is going to say one narrative, but if you want to know what's going on, you need to reach out to the educators in your life and ask like, what has this experience been like for you? That was Maria White, a first grade teacher in Minneapolis and member of Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and Educational Support Professionals. Next, we spoke with Ben Polk, an education support professional in Minneapolis and also member of the union. Hey, I'm Ben Polk. I'm an SEA at Justice Page Middle School. So yeah, tell us what it's been like on day three of the strike on on the picket lines. Well, you know, when you, what I, what I was telling my folks today is like, when I get home and like hear like the news from mediation and like see district's press conference, I get so frustrated and discouraged and anxious. But then whenever I'm out there on the line with, uh, with the people, with my colleagues, and it just feels so amazing. And the, the level of energy and commitment is totally overwhelming. It's been, it's been incredible. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about 
what it's been like at your school over the last couple of years. I know that um, it's been hard for everyone, but what is the experience sure. of the students that you work with and, and the families? So I just started at Justice Page last year, but Justice Page uh, was known, is known still, I think, for having like a really, really strong culture, both within the staff and the students. And coming back after COVID and the CDD, um, that has really, really been stressed, really been strained. Um, you know, something like 50, 60% of our students are new mm. and our building is over, way overcrowded. We had almost 1,100 kids in this, at the beginning of the year this year. And last year we had closer to 800. Um, and, you know, so you throw a lot of like traumatized students into an overcrowded building um, and don't staff it enough. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. It's pretty hard. I, I will say though that um, I am so overwhelmed and impressed and in awe of my colleagues and my staff and the staff that I work with, like the work that they're doing for students and the effort they put in and the love that they put in is so amazing. But I, we all just need more support. And like, there's this feeling that it just like can't continue the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. So the St. Paul teachers did get a tentative agreement. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly what's going on with the food service workers, but this is a pretty impressive moment nonetheless, where you have multiple unions across school districts, um, aligning on a strike deadline and strike votes. Um, so yeah, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. What I can speak to is, you know, the the divide between ESPs and teachers is one that's there structurally, right? Because we were, I'm an ESP, we're hourly. Um, we don't make as much, we're not involved in curriculum planning or any of that kind of like uh, collaboration. And so uh, I feel very fortunate that in my building, ESPs are really embraced as part of the school. Um, I know that's not always the case at every school, but the the way that the union has gone about um, basically saying like, we're not doing this without the ESPs and the ESPs are saying, we're not doing this without the teachers, despite the district's efforts to like, you know, divide us. That has just been awe-inspiring. And the fact that we were able to take all these steps kind of in lockstep, do the vote together, go out together. Um, that has been really amazing because now there's this feeling that like there really isn't, despite all the structural differences, that there really isn't a difference between um, how we're seeing the struggle between teachers and ESPs. It's just like one force. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to talk about, right? The school is, especially with this conversation about sort of school buildings being closed, you realize all the things that um, it's hard to provide when you're not in person and how valuable yeah. all those things are. Mm -hmm. And that despite the sort of overwhelming pressure in the press for the school buildings to be reopened, I don't see a similar conversation about all of the services that schools provide and how important those are. And maybe that we should fund them if we've realized how important they are. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of going back to what I said before, we're doing like, we know, you know, 
Marsha Howard is like, Minnesotans, y'all don't like to toot your own horns, you know, but like, we know our own value and we know our value to the students. And we know it because we have these conversations with kids every single day about like, you know, we talk to them about like the stress they're feeling, the, you know, we talk to them about their friendships. We talk to them about, um, you know, everything and, you know, what it's like you know, I'm a white person, but I'll talk, my students will talk to me about what it's like to be a, like a black kid or a student of color in the city. And those are amazing conversations. And they're, they're super valuable for me. They're super valuable. I think they're really valuable for them. And I feel like we've built this like relationship of trust between us, but we also know, and that's true. First of all, that's true across the building, but we also know that just because of the way things are, we're not able to do that enough. And we're not able to do that with as many students as we used to be able to simply because we're so stretched. And, you know, every teacher would love to do that with all of their students. But if you have 35 kids in a classroom and a lot of them are showing up with like much higher needs than we've seen before, it's just, we just need more support to be able to do that. So if we want those relationships, if we want those things that school provides, for our students, that emotional support, that relationship with a caring adult who cares about the student's life and their growth and their future. Like we just have to invest in it because we're stretched to the breaking point. Yeah. I know that there are, um, there are asks about increasing pay for ESPs, um, but also talk about like staffing levels and what the needs are for, you were just saying, right. How understaffed it is Mm -hmm. um, and what people, what you all are asking for in terms of getting more people like yourself into the classroom. Well, so these two questions are connected. Um, The first is, so my building, we, we began this year understaffed because of how many more students we have. And the, especially in the mental health and SEA, um, angle, the amount of students that need services and that need our help. And we just don't have enough people to give it to them the way that we want to, you know, there've been number, first of all, I'm all, I'm often like, you know, one SEA and four or five or six students with like really high behavioral needs in a classroom. And, you know, that's just, I just can't do that. And you know, we've had multiple occasions of like students having a mental health crisis and there's just no counselors available because there's their book, they're talking to somebody else. And, um, then in addition to that, sorry, I'm losing my voice because of all the hollering I've had to do. Um, <laughs> it's fine. In addition to that, we've lost, um, a lot of our behavior support deans. We've lost people as this, as the year has gone on because, they just can't, the job is so hard and what they're being paid is just not enough. And so we're losing people in addition to being understaffed and we're losing people. You know, we lost two behavior deans this year and those are the people that know every single kid in the school, that build a relationship with every kid that keep the halls safe. And they're just gone now because the job just got to be too much and the pay was just gross and insufficient. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
Maria and I were talking about sort of parent support and community support. But yeah, tell us what you've been hearing from the parents that that you know and that you have interacted with. Oh, it's been overwhelmingly supportive. It's been amazing. I mean, I think we know that in order to get the things that we need, we've got to have parents on our side. And we have, I, I don't know of a single person that's had a negative con- conversation with a parent. Every single conversation we've had, like when we went out canvassing uh, last week, um, you know, you, it was hard to find a person who would knock on a door and have even one conversation where the, the community member didn't support them. So that level of support has just been overwhelming. We don't know what to do with all the donuts and cookies that we that we're getting. <laughs> <laughs> Donut solidarity is real. Although you know, oh when the God. strikes go on for more than a week, you start to be like, okay, what can I bring to the picket line that is slightly healthier than donuts and pizza? Yeah, I mean, we we got enough donuts, y'all. Everyone, just <laughs> just be that. Let it be known, we have enough donuts. We need bananas and fruit and. Uh, <laughs> Healthy, healthy, healthy picket line snacks to keep up your strength. Well, and can I tell you? What, can I tell you what else we need? Yeah. yeah, we need we need parents to donate to the strike fund. Mm. We need every single person who supports us to donate to the strike fund. If you think we need bagels, donate to the strike fund because what we really need, yeah, bagels are delicious and we love them. But what we what we really need is like to be able to go to the grocery store in a couple of weeks when their paychecks start getting affected. Yeah. And this is, you know, we're coming on, you know, looking into getting into a second week and ESPs, we do not make much money. Most of us are living paycheck to paycheck and soon we won't be able to pay our bills. Um, so if you support us, that's, it's just an essential thing. We need it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I know as we're talking, folks are going back into mediation. But um, are you expecting this to be going on for a while? What are you you thinking in terms of you know how close well, you, you know, are? We're not privy to the details of mediation. Um, I do know that uh, what the district is offering right now is not acceptable. We're not close. Um, they're not real. I mean, they're saying that ESPs need to be paid more, and that's great. But they're not acknowledging the scale of what needs to be done and the scale of the reinvestment that needs to happen. Um, they're crying about the budget. Um, and sure, but like this budget, if there's a budget crisis, it's because we haven't invested in schools over the last 20 years, 30 years, we've disinvested from schools and they're not recognizing the scale of what needs to happen. We need a reinvestment here. That's what's going to solve our budget crisis. Yeah. And the thing that we're hearing, of course, from the federal government is that we gave the schools money. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. And we that money's there, right? It's supposed <laughs> to be. That's what they said. <laughs> That's what I, they, I'm, I'm not mean, in charge of the budget. <laughs> yeah. I'm not in charge of the budget either. But I mean, I know that MPS has a surplus. And um, if they really wanted to attack the problem, they would use that surplus to like recreate the way you know, reimagine the way that we think about our values and how we prioritize things in the school district. And they would say, if we're losing students, we have this opportunity now. We have this chunk of money now where we can like transform things. And 
make this a place that people not just won't leave, but that people will come back to. Yeah. And so I think of it, you know, part, it's a crisis and it's scary. You know, my son is eight years old. He's not in school right now. You know, it's a, you know, it's, it's an intense thing for our family and it's an intense thing for every family. This is also an opportunity though. This is an opportunity to, you know, the strike in 1970 remade public schools for like 30 years. And we have a chance to do that again right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been interesting to watch this sort of, um, the shift, right? We were really seeing a shift in, in public discourse around public schools and teachers, um, starting with Chicago strike in 2012, but really after the red for ed strikes in 2018. And then it seemed like the pandemic was just this opportunity to, to start blaming teachers for everything again. And so what's going on in Minneapolis right now, people are watching around the country, teachers, education workers around the country are watching to see Again, I, I was saying to Maria that the narrative of parents being angry at, at school workers um, proving not to be the case, I think, is really. It's so true. I mean, you kept, we kept hearing this rhetoric and over the last few months of just like, parents are just going to want you in your seats. You know, they're just going to want you in class. And of course they do, but, you know, they're, they're behind us. And they want the same things we want. I also think that, you know, we're seeing a change in narrative away from like the idea that a bunch of, you know, bureaucrats in a district office can manufacture the kind of change that is needed. And, you know, what we're seeing now is like, no, this is the way it's always been. Social change comes from solidarity among people on the ground the people who know the, the work um, and in schools, the people who know the students, the people who are in the classrooms, the people who have in real life investments in the system. And that's, yeah, that's what we're seeing again right now. Amazing. Um, anything else you want people to know about the strike or, or your experiences this week? Well, whenever I'm asked that, I just, I wish people would understand, and I hope they do, just the depth to which like, we love our students. We are like genuinely heartbroken not to be with them. And everything we do every single day, it's a, it's a thing that I noticed like right when I showed up at Justice Page. Just mm-hmm. like, man, the level of love for the job, the level of love for the students here is overwhelming. And I feel that way. And that's why I do the job. And that's why everyone that I work with does the job. And, you know, when we showed up in September doing lesson plans and like teaching classes, we're doing that because we love the students. When, you know, we make them wear masks, we do that because we love the students. Mm -hmm. When we're like, you know, counseling them, we do that because we love the students. And when we're out here on the streets, we do that because we love the students. It's, It's out of that love that we're doing this work. And that was Ben Polk, a special education assistant in Minneapolis on strike this week. Now we turn to St. Paul with Leah Van Dasser of the St. Paul Federation of Educators. Can I get you to start off by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Leah Van Dasser, and I'm a middle school English teacher right now on release as president of St. Paul Federation of Educators. So you are 
well, not on strike right now, because uh, at the last minute you did get a tentative agreement. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what's in that and what some of the demands were for the St. Paul educators this year? Sure. Thank you. Um, So we um, came into this contract cycle um, looking to sort of just maybe enhance a few of the things that we had in the contract and not do a whole lot because it has been, you know, kind of a hard two years. We haven't really put the, the things we won last round with our strike into practice, but the district came back and wanted to remove a lot of the things that we've spent the last 10, 12 years um, working hard for. So mm-hmm. we wound up um, securing class size language as an article in our contract, which secures it. That's just a much stronger language. And um, for, for grades kindergarten through third grade, it, um, actually the numbers of capsize in those classes actually went down slightly. So that was um, really a positive move forward, both for our members and our students and then the district to, you know, finally agree with us on that, that that was a high, a high priority that we all agree with and that we now need to reflect in, in our actions. So that was a big one. Um, another one was we, we maintain some language in our contract that guarantees um, some mental health support work going forward. After the last um, contract where we did strike, we did um, demand and get quite a few more counselors, um, general education, social workers, and behavioral intervention specialists. This time around, we want to make sure that those teams in the buildings were solid and could work as a team and do that work as needed around to wrap around service the student for the students. We also um, at this time gained six district-wide psychologists, which we was an area where we, there's still some need in our district. So the district will be working toward um, hiring those in positions in. And then we also um, maintain some language around our restorative practices. Um, it's not as strong as we'd like it to be there, but that is, you know, we got some commitments from the district that this is a shared value that we will try to work on moving forward as well. Um, we changed some case, some language around um, special ed caseloads and some work that's going to be done there. That was a that was a big improvement. Um, and then as far as wages and compensation, we really pushed hard and 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 a major push for this contract was to increase the wages of our lowest paid members of our bargaining unit, which are education assistants, and they um, received quite a hefty raise. Um, you know, it's, it's much larger than the licensed teachers received, but their, their pay was already so low that even with this big chunk, it's moving the the needle in the right direction. There's still work to do. Now we have, we have this base to move forward and we can, you know, continue this fight as we move forward with, you know, negotiations in just, um, under two years again (laughs) in the state of Minnesota, um, we're required to bargain our contract every two years, so we'll be right back at this in a couple of years trying to um, you know, maintain and, and push for even more for our members and our students um, as we continue in this. Yeah, you had a strike two years ago. The two years before that, there was an almost strike. Um, it's been... It's been a a process in St. Paul, particularly, of um, really pushing to get these things in the contract. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about sort of the last few cycles and how we got to where you are today? Sure, I will give that a shot. Um, So I know that I started being on the bargaining team in 2015, and that was the first year that we held um, a strike. Well, we've scheduled a strike vote. Right. 
And then the next cycle in 2017, we held a strike vote. And then in 2019, we had the strike vote and we struck. This time around, we had a strike vote again. And the the pattern prior even to 2015 was that we had to get to that point of some major um, pressure point with our district to get them to even take us seriously and get to the table um, so that we would actually start having this happen. Even this time, we um, made our announcement that we would strike on March 8th, and the district didn't really start getting serious about meeting with us until March 2nd. And so from March 2nd to March 8th, the majority of the work got done. And it could have gotten done a lot sooner. Um, I think having everybody understand that, you know, nobody wants to have to give too soon on any of these things. But when, when we all have shared values and the district says that they have the same values that we have and that they want these same things for our students, then I think the message really needs to be when you budget, you budget your priorities. And so you you budget your values and your priorities. And if it really is something that you value, then you put that money into it. And that's where you put your emphasis and where you put your work and where you put the, the money behind what you want to have happen for your students. So I, that is a shift that's that even shifted in this round where we started to talk more about values and even more so than usual. I mean, we've been clear. SPFE has been clear from the start. Here are the things we value. Here's where we're going to push. We're not going to give up. And so moving forward, I think there's a a mutual agreement, not really an agreement, but a mutual understanding or both sides kind of have the same types of feelings that we need to look at this differently moving forward so that we can avoid this constant um, antagonistic work that we do with each other, that it's stu- it's tough on everyone. Like it's tough on families. It's tough on other staff in the district, the planning that needs to go in and, you know, just are we going to strike or not strike? And, and even on our teachers, not having, not knowing what that might bring has been, um, it's just difficult for everyone. So I think, being able to change how that works going forward, we'll see. I, I I'm optimistic that we can do something different, but I think um, it'll really it'll be telling the next few months how we work on the things that we didn't quite come to agreement on that that we agreed we would talk about further outside of bargaining, um, as you know, in collaboration with one another to see how that could be um, more more powerfully done moving forward. So also one of the the big things right now is that the Minneapolis teachers who are on strike um, and you all had the same deadlines, the same sort of contract expiration um, and similar demands. So can you talk a little bit about the process of sort of coordinating across the Twin Cities? And um, this is the first year, I think, in a while that the Minneapolis teachers have struck and, and even come close to a strike, right? Yeah, their last strike was in 1970. And um, prior to our last strike, we hadn't struck since 1946 in St. Paul. So we got close in 1989, but then it didn't happen. Um, and that this, the fact that this is, you know, we had almost a strike again two years after the last strike. Minneapolis is striking. I think you're seeing a turn in the attitudes right now around labor, that organized labor and regardless of the type of labor is, is seeing that society um, – needs needs all of us and we start we're stronger together we need to push for that and get what's what's best for either you know not just our members but also the families the students 
the other workers, you know, when you've got when you've got students whose families are financially secure and their housing is financially secure and their parents are home and they don't have to work three jobs because they're being paid a living wage at just the one, you have a different situation in society generally that people feel more secure, they feel more stable, they come to school, they're ready to learn, they aren't worried about any of those things that are not for kids to worry about, but that's on them if they're if they're struggling. And all those things tied together just really make um, a difference in how um, society can work. And these education issues, like we had class size, the district tried to take it away. We stopped that. Minneapolis is trying to get that language. They're trying to get more mental health supports. These are not things that people want just because St. Paul has them. They're things that people want because they're needed. And this is not a Minneapolis-St. Paul or a large urban area situation. This is a an education situation. This is something that you're going to see more and more across the country and within our state. You know, things are changing all over. Um, students' needs, especially after the pandemic, families have different needs. Students have things that big feelings about things that they need to work through. And there needs to be a resource there somewhere. And since many of those things typically fall to schools to take care of, that's where the push is right now. Yeah, I think that's such a good point that, I mean, the pandemic showed us, well, it showed us a lot of awful things, but one of them was that the things that teachers have been calling for are even more important and necessary right now, right? Smaller class sizes are a life and death issue when every sort of inch you're closer together increases transmission risk. Mm -hmm. And mental health counselors are probably even more necessary after the last two years where kids are just, you know, been stewing in uncertainty and and fear for two years. Yep, that's exactly right. And, you know, we can't just conjure up mental health supports. Um, You know, this is a this is going to be a big need for our country for years to come. So, this is, you know, the time is now again for people to be thinking about, is this something that they would like to do to help others is go into those types of professions? Because that is, that's not, you don't just see this in education. You're seeing this in our healthcare system as well. You know, just the strain and stress that's been put on um, all of our healthcare workers over the last two years. And there's, everyone has breaking a breaking point and it's, it's these care and service professions that people are in are often highly needed and then set aside once they're over. And then those folks need somebody as well to support them. So I think we're looking at um, this being something that's going to be with us for quite a while. And um, it's important that we focus on how are we going to make these changes so that people can feel like they're supported and people can feel like there's someone there to help them. Yeah, one of the things that uh, makes this particular strike and and almost strike really notable and I think important in this moment is how much teachers have been demonized and sort of bullied over the last two years about um, being in a physical classroom when things are dangerous, having to fight for sort of every safety precaution in schools, and being told in even progressive leaning publications that they need to get back in the classroom or else. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, especially again, having these two districts willing to strike at the same time, um, what you think the significance of this moment is in terms of changing that really awful discourse around teachers and schools? Well, that's (laughs) no pressure. (laughs) No, I think that, that, 
the the demonizing of teachers and and that's maybe a little strong um for pre 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 pandemic but you know um the 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 narrative around teachers just trying to always they just want more money and they need to stop being greedy is you know a view of what unions look like even though that's not how St. Paul Minneapolis are working it's that you know we know that our students need things and this is what we're fighting for. And it's hard, but it's hard to come out of that. Right at the beginning of the pandemic in that spring quarter of the school year there in, in like April, May of 2020, parents all realized um, when they had their kids home all day for school, what teachers had been doing for all that time. And it was a it was a delightful two months as a teacher to be, you know, see on social media all the statements that families were making about, man, pay those teachers more. They, I give them everything they need for the classroom because they were seeing just with their own kids what, what teachers um, do on a daily basis to support their students. And then summer hit and kids were still home. And then the, spring, the fall hit and kids were still home. And I think then families were like, I need to do what I need to do here. And so schools were seen more as a, this is a place where our students need to go, both for education, but also for all the other things schools supply for them. Um, which is a safe place to be during the day with, with caring and supportive adults. That's true. And, you know, if it's what were people willing to give up and let teachers take the burden on is even with safety because mm-hmm. they needed to get back to their jobs. And, the, and, you know, the economy was reliant on schools to take care of this and yet schools remain unfunded. You know, I, I guess that the big picture here for me is, Schools can do all the things that the society would like schools to do, but they also need to be funded at that level so that those resources are not just um, do more with less is where we're at right now. And why we had the spot where we're in the spot with even Minneapolis is they're expected to do more with less, get paid below living wages for people who want to work with kids and want to do this kind of work, it takes a special kind of person to want to be an educator in the first place. And we need to hang on to those folks. They're not all over the place. I mean, yep, they could go to Target and get a job there and work and get paid more. But that's not a job that requires the kind of skills of just wanting to be patient and work with children and young people. And that's, again, with it's very similar to what you see in healthcare, especially with, you know, with nurses and doctors, it's that people choose these professions because they are fulfilled by them. And, but it's, you, that only goes so far. And if things are as hard as they've been over the last two years, a lot of educators are leaving the profession. It was always hard to hang on to teachers because it is so taxing and the pandemic has exacerbated that. And we have great educators leaving because it's just been too much and they're not being supported enough. And it's not financial. I mean, that's part of it. It's always going to be part of it. But teachers have never, have always known going into education is not, you're not going to get rich being an educator, but you are going to have, you are going to get those other, those other um, benefits because of the work and the work this year has just been so draining as far as it's just been about kids are behind, do better, hurry up and pass them. They need to get all this other stuff done. And it's, they're just losing the whole part about relationship and one-to-one work with students and getting to know them and their families and having the actual like joy of learning and the students is 
part of what, you know, feeds teachers and keeps them in the classroom. And when it's so much emphasis is put on catch them up, um, that's been very difficult, I think, for educators as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Is there anything else people should know about um, what's going on in Minnesota right now? Um, I think really the only other thing I'd mention about what's going on in Minnesota right now around this is that we um, currently have, as everyone knows, a nine over nine billion billion with a B dollar surplus at the legislature, and we have teachers on strike because they don't have funding they need for their schools. Um, I think that that is a sentence I should never have to say out loud again. Um, it seems ludicrous that that would be the situation we're in where people are are willing to, people who already underpaid are willing to forego that pay and make that sacrifice for their students in this climate where there's more than enough money for that situation to be avoided entirely. And I think that the legislature needs to step up and look at how they fund public education in Minnesota. A, a large, a vast majority of the money that comes to public education in Minnesota does come from the state, but it's been underfunded for the last two decades. And that has created a situation now where you're seeing school districts not being able to do what is best for students because they claim they don't have the funding. And in some cases that's true. They don't have enough. And I think that that could be remedied quite easily with this surplus. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Leah Van Dassar, president of the St. Paul Federation of Educators. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but did not write. My pick for ARG is That Was What Hurt the Most by Sharon Johnson in The Progressive. One of the most common ways for one person to instantly destroy another person's life in this country, short of outright physical violence, that is, is to utter two words, you're fired. If you've ever been on the receiving end of that phrase, you probably know the pain and disruption that is caused by getting canned. Even when it's not a job you particularly enjoy, it could be a job that you actually hate. It's still devastating to lose income. It can send you into a spiral of debt. It can punish your whole family with eviction, hunger, or emotional trauma. And there's one aspect of being fired that can feel extremely insulting or incredibly unfair. Sometimes you're not given a reason. Or maybe you realize the reason you've been terminated is because your boss didn't like you speaking up to defend your rights at work or standing up for a coworker who was being abused. Maybe they didn't like your gender or race or age. Whatever the reason or lack thereof, it's totally legal for the most part. Most workers in the U.S. can essentially be fired for no reason at all because the employer is not obligated to have a fair reason. Uh, They can do it just because. Basically, this comes down to a lack of just cause protections. Just cause mandates that an employer provide an adequate justification whenever it terminates a worker. You may think that workers are protected from being fired unfairly because of anti-discrimination protections. This may be true if you can pinpoint that you are terminated specifically due to your being a member of a protected class under civil rights laws. 
but it is often extremely difficult to prove this. And for a low-wage worker who's just been fired by a bigoted boss, the time, resources, and energy required for litigating such a claim of discrimination before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or a similar body or a civil court is so massive and takes so long that the worker might very reasonably decide that it's simply not worth fighting their termination. Even more perversely, the discrimination at work that you suffer may well be the reason you do not complain to authorities, since that could get you fired. And once you're fired, you may figure it's probably just better that you get another crappy low-wage job. And so the cycle continues. Johnson quotes a statement from Manuela Sebulveda to researchers with the National Employment Law Project, or NELP, describing her experience as a home health aide who was terminated early on in the pandemic. Quote, after risking my life to go to work, to not be valued at all, that was what hurt the most, she said, adding that employers like hers, quote, don't value us as humans and don't think about how an unjust firing impacts not just the worker, but an entire family, both economically and emotionally, unquote. According to NELP's survey, which focused on workers in Illinois who have been recently fired, being fired or quote-unquote let go triggered an economic and social crisis for many. Quote, almost half of all workers in Illinois, 46%, have been fired or let go from jobs at some point in their careers. More than one in three reported that they were fired for no reason or an unfair reason, and 71% said that they had borrowed money or used credit cards to pay their bills. Two out of three depleted all their savings after job loss. More than seven in 10 reported a negative impact on household and family relationships. Nine out of 10 suffered stress and negative mental health, unquote. Workers of color seem to be especially hard hit. Irene Tung, who is a former guest on Belabored and my former colleague at Asia Pacific Forum, and is now an analyst at NELP, said that the survey found that more than 40% of both Black and Latinx workers quote, reported unfair discipline, unquote, yet employers were generally not held to account since, quote, it was difficult for public enforcement agencies, such as the Illinois and U.S. Departments of Labor, to protect workers because they rely on workers for complaints. Workers can't speak up because they fear that they will lose their livelihood, unquote. It is possible to push back against this impunity. Union contracts often contain just cause provisions, which force the boss to provide a fair reason before terminating the worker, based on standards set forth in the contract. And now there is a movement afoot across the country to make just cause the law. In 2019, Philadelphia passed a just cause law for parking attendance, for example. New York City passed a similar ordinance to protect fast food workers, which requires employers to, quote, provide warnings and consistent, proportionate disciplinary actions before letting employees go, unquote. It also gives workers a chance to challenge their termination in an arbitration process. There are also other initiatives pushing just cause laws on the state level. Ideally, the requirement for just cause would also be tied to specific standards for disciplinary actions that should be implemented before someone is fired. While people could still be fired for business-related reasons, and it still sucks to be fired, the fact that bosses are held to a legal standard of transparency and due process, and to ensure that workers know why they're being fired, and they can appeal that decision, means that workers are empowered to negotiate with bosses before they're given a pink slip. Just cause overall is one of the most basic standards for workplace democracy. It gives workers at least some leverage to demand that they keep their job because there is no reason for them to lose it. It helps dismantle the notion that a workplace is the boss's private fiefdom, to be run like a small autocracy. We would not let the government strip us of our livelihood without due process. Why should workers have to accept a decree that could irrevocably damage their lives? 
without demanding that their employer's decision be fair. This week, I chose a piece that felt a little bit personal to me. By Kelly Maria Corducci at Elle magazine, it's titled, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and We're Still at Work. Specifically, it's a piece about single or childless women and work in the pandemic. We've heard a lot about the demands placed on parents during COVID, and rightly so, as we live in a society, stop me if you've heard me rant about this before, that doesn't provide childcare or treat care work as actual work, whether it is paid or unpaid. But the gendered expectation that women will do all the caring, unpaid and out of love, that society needs doesn't only affect women who are mothers. It also affects those of us who don't have children, who face the expectation that we will provide more unpaid care to those around us, perhaps especially in the workplace. Kurducki writes, quote, For two years, as COVID fortified the divide between parents and non-parents, women's respective experiences have been framed in terms of work, emotional work, care work, career work. The image of the exhausted, overburdened mother has been emblazoned on the collective imagination. We saw it in the hard numbers, nearly 33 million Americans resigning from their jobs between April and November 2021, mostly women and extremely burned out. And we heard it in The Primal Scream, as a viral New York Times package called it, of mothers struggling to balance the demands of career and family in a time of virtual schooling, curtailed childcare, and not-so-secret disparities between men and women at home. The childless working woman, presumed frivolous by extension, her problems trivial by comparison, often quietly dissolved into her job. In the absence of contact with family and friends, the remote workplace became many white-collar workers' stand-in for community. No doubt work is work, and all told, parents had more of it. But career work, unlike parenting, does not offer love in return, end quote. Where have we heard that before? But seriously, the expectation that the career woman, as one of Corducci's interviewees put it, didn't have much else to do besides work anyway, is pernicious as well. And I felt it myself launching a book on this very subject during a global pandemic, where any attempt to establish a personal boundary or some time off was met with incredulity, and I wound up working seven days a week, often at odd hours to fit in other people's podcasts and radio schedules. White-collar workers like me and most of Kordaki's subjects, of course, were lucky in many respects. We kept our jobs and were able to work from home, mitigating our risk of the virus. But our other emotional and physical needs, as she notes, can often fall by the wayside when we feel relatively insulated from crisis. Kordaki writes, In our phone conversations and email exchanges, her subjects, quote, described internal and external pressures to assume ever-mounting responsibility sometimes while caring for relatives or grieving a loss. Some recalled how their sudden housebound isolation cut them off from the companionship and rituals that normally gave their lives meaning, not to mention work-life balance. And most spoke of the guilt and emotional baggage that comes from being a woman of child-rearing age who has opted, at least for now, to put career first. She adds, quote, The elimination of boundaries between work and non-work life became a recipe for disaster. And from there, a catalyst for a major reevaluation of priorities and purpose. End quote. One of her subjects, Jordan Treadaway, describes it thus quote, I was working from home and without kids, so there was a kind of a combined assumption from my peers that I would always be available because what else would I be doing? But also for myself, there was this kind of guilt. If I wasn't always available, or if I would stop work to take a shower in the middle of the day, then I felt like I was taking advantage of the situation. End quote. Workaholism, a term we don't hear so often anymore, though friend of the show Dave Zirin recently sent me a 1981 article about it, it isn't actually good for you, even outside of pandemic isolation. 
but it is also what our culture and, you know, what capitalism encourages. And if you're a woman, that encouragement also means you're expected to take on additional caring burdens in the workplace, even if you also have them in the home. Rochelle Ritchie, who is another one of Kordaki's subjects and was coordinating care for her father when he had COVID, described it as, quote, I feel like people think, well, you're single, you have no children, so you should be able to just take everything off. The thing about being single and with no children is that we are all we've got at the end of the day, end quote. The pandemic, research found, led the work-from-home brigades to lose many of the few boundaries we did have between work and home. Without the social cues of the office, some didn't take breaks, others felt guilty from working from home and piled on more work. Still others, like me, filled up the space we'd otherwise spend with the social circle that serves in our lives the way a spouse and children might for those who have them. But capitalist society doesn't value those caring relationships in the way it does heterosexual monogamy, and even that it values less than constant productivity. Some of Kordeki's subjects used the moment to quit their jobs, joining the, quote, great resignation. But might I also suggest forming a union? That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on teacher strikes, the Postal Service, tech and media workers, and our COVID work habits. Thanks, as always, go to the good folks at Descent for hosting us for 242 episodes, to Natasha Lewis, and now to Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, to all of you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, and talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories. We would especially love it if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us find new listeners and it doesn't cost you anything except a couple of moments of your time. But if you do have some money to share, we would love to send an extra special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast over at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash belabored. We, of course, want to keep the podcast free for everyone who cannot maybe afford to kick in, but that only works if all of you who can afford to help keep us going. We also have some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier, your charming belabored tote bag, and more. You can always find out more on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story with us of working or organizing, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are an education worker or a postal worker, a workaholic or unemployed, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>